Today's re- uh, readings are from two parts, from the Luke 8, 22 to 26, and also Psalm 107, 23 to 32. So that's also in the leaflet and, of course, on the screen and in your Bibles. One day Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith, he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked each other, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. Over in Psalm 107, 23. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted up lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm in a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love, for his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. By the last... The end of the last sermon, I think my belly button was the thing that was being mic'd, and so hopefully we don't have the same experience this time. Now, some of you are of a similar generation to me. You remember the X-Files? They've had a, re- a renaissance recently, haven't they? Yes. So what was the big slogan of the X-Files? The truth is out there. And its second slogan, does anyone remember? Trust no one. Now, think about it. Can you actually work like that? Could you actually trust no one? I don't think it's actually possible uh, to survive. You can't actually operate in a trust-free, in a faith-free zone. Everyone trusts someone or something. So the question I'm going to ask you many times this morning is, who do you trust? Who or what do you put your faith in? Now, if you go out into our community and ask, you get a whole range of options. Uh, you get people who tell you uh, that you have to trust yourself. Have you had people say that? You have to trust yourself. And so you've got to find the strength from within to confront everything that is there. Some of you have the privilege of going to schools that teach you positive psychology, that teach you to find that inner strength and nurture it and all that stuff. Now, positive psych's got its place, can I say. Trust yourself. Really? Maybe we should trust the government. 
Yeah, I didn't think that one cut it really either. Uh, we're a bit sus of that one at the moment, aren't we? Our leaders stand up and say, trust me, trust us. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. It depends what they're asking. When it comes to restructuring the tax system, do we actually really trust them? When it comes to messing with our superannuation with negative gearing, do we trust them? Well, the election's coming up and we'll see, won't we? We're told that we have to trust the human spirit. So maybe it's not people individually, but generally the good of humanity. Now, I wonder sometimes whether people who say this actually live on the same planet as I do and watch the same news that I watch. There's enough out there that I think calls that into question. So who do you trust? Who do you trust? Every now and again, I come across some people who say things like this. Have you you had people say this to you? I wish I had your faith. Has anyone had that? There's a few people nodding out there. Uh, it's, It's quite an odd thing to say because what it actually says, it puts the focus on believing something, trusting something, having faith in something, not the something that you actually have got faith in. And for some of these people, it doesn't matter what it is that you believe, as long as you believe something. But can I say that doesn't really work? You know, if you're going abseiling and you take a ball of wool, no matter how strong your faith is, the object of your faith, it will let you down and you will fall down the cliff and the rest will be history. Faith has to have an object and its, its value is only as good as the thing that that faith is actually in. It's kind of like love. Love must have an object. Love in or of itself makes no sense. I'm a loving person, you might say. Well, what does that mean if you have nothing to refer to that you love? Love and faith, they must have an object. So who or what do you trust? What do you turn to? What do you fall back on? We've been looking over the last couple of weeks at the hard words of Jesus. So two weeks ago, follow me. Last week, love your enemies. This week, trust. And our passage that uh, Diana read for us is a passage all about trust. So let's unpack this together. Now, it's probably a familiar story. If ever you've been to kids' church, Sunday school, uh, you've heard this story. It's in Matthew, Mark and Luke. So if you've read one of those, you've read this story. Uh, It's a story about a boat ride that Jesus one day says, let's cross over the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a lake, can I say? It's not actually really a sea because it's actually quite small. It's 21 kilometres north-south. 13 kilometres east-west, and they were travelling sort of diagonally across it uh, from Capernaum up in Galilee across to the regions of the Gutterines, so down into the southeast. okay? And as Jesus said it, you can imagine that the professional fishermen who were there at the time, Peter, Andrew, James, John, they made their living fishing this lake. They're like, yep, got this covered. Totally over this, Jesus. You're talking, you know, this is our comfort zone. We have got this. You sit down the front, Jesus. Look, you're a carpenter and a rabbi. You know nothing about sailing. Okay, you sit down there. We have got this under control. One day Jesus said to his disciples, Luke 8.22, let's go over the other side of the lake. 
And as far as they were concerned, that's all Jesus needed to say. They have got the rest covered. So they got into the boat and set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. So you can imagine, they've kind of just quietly pushed him to the front, maybe, and just, uh, just sit up there and don't hurt yourself, Jesus. We've got this under control. You can have a nap, even. Put your feet up, relax. You know you've been really busy, Jesus. Now, it's idyllic, isn't it? It's a nice, tranquil kind of scene. How much of our life is like this? You look at it and actually go, well, day to day, it's pretty under control. Got this, got this life thing. Don't need you, God, actually to get involved. Got the skills, playing in my comfort zone. We've got some very gifted people in this room. You guys are well educated. You've got resources behind you and you're all magnificently attractive as well. I can say that standing up here looking at you all. You've got all the charm and the flair. You've got it covered. You've got so much that you can make your way in this world. And we can be tempted to think, Jesus, we're in our comfort zone. We've got this covered. We actually... We don't need you for this. Just put your feet up, Jesus. You know, the whole saving the world, keeping everything running, that's your business. But, you know, we've got this covered. But as you know the story, and if you've lived your life for long enough, you'll know that this is just an illusion of control. How quickly things can change. One phone call. One email. One the boss walks out and says, we need to have a talk. One conversation. One moment of distraction in the car. One sentence from a doctor telling you that what you feared has come true. One chance encounter. That illusion of control can be shown for what it is. Life is like this, though. Life, it comes down and it challenges us with that question of who do we trust. It gives us lessons of trust. Now, I've been living now for a while and I've learned that there are things in my life that I'm tempted to trust, but ultimately experience and sometimes bitter experience has taught me not to trust Sometimes experience demonstrates just how fragile the things that we trust truly are. Maybe it's the friendships that you build your life around. Maybe it's the value that you put on them that you feel from them. Maybe it's the brain that you have that always seems to have the right answer. The looks that make the heads turn. The kids who make you so proud, the wife, the husband, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, that just are there for you. They build you up. They make you twice the person you are without them. Maybe it's the job that paid the bills, the roof over the head, the experience of the holidays that you look forward to, the reputation, the relationship, whatever it is that we're tempted to trust, ultimately... Life will show you that you cannot, you cannot put your trust in these things because they will not ultimately take the weight. 
So where do we end up? Do we end up just in a black pit of the X-Files, trust no one? Well, that's not the way it is. Ultimately, there is one that we can trust. And how do we know that that one is trustworthy? Where do we learn this? Ultimately, we learn it in the scriptures. Ultimately, we learn it from recounting all the things that God has done in the past. You know, in psychology, they tell you that the best predictor of future performance is past performance. So when we were looking for a youth pastor for Trinity Hills, I applied this psychological thing. I found someone who had no interest, no training, no experience in kids. No, of course I didn't. We found someone who had experience, had training, had desire, had runs on the board, who knew their way around a youth group and go, hey, what about you you oversee our youth and kids ministry? We do this all the time. You don't look to give a contract to someone to do something on the house. Let's just say you're doing a building project and you find someone like me who has no idea about the way around a building project and say, you've got no experience in the past, you've demonstrated no aptitude for this job, Cameron, you're exactly the right person for the job. You wouldn't do it. If you're looking for someone that is completely trustworthy, you should go and you see just how trustworthy they have been in the past. If this thing, if this person has let you down once, twice, three times, four times, are they showing themselves to be worthy of trust? Or perhaps not. But we go back through scripture. Kids Church are looking at the Exodus story where God saves his people. Diana read for us from Psalm 107. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. God is a God who saves again and again and again. And ultimately, the evidence we have of this is not the Exodus or Psalm 107 or any of the other stories, the ultimate trump in terms of God as the trustworthy saviour is the resurrection. If God can save his son out of the grave, he's got what it takes to save you or I. just want to stop here. A little bit of an aside. When people say to you, I wish I had your faith, how do you actually answer that? Maybe you're here this morning and you're listening and you're thinking, I want to have faith like that. Well, think about how faith actually works. Faith works in relationship. Faith is not something that's just abstract. As we actually get to know someone, we get to trust someone or not trust someone. You see how it works within relationship. And we have two great gifts. We have the historic relationship of God's people to him, recorded in scripture, where God has shown himself faithful again and again and again. And if someone says, I want more faith, I say, go back into God's word. Dwell in that. And as you dwell in that, not just 
historically, but as you apply that in your life in the here and the now. So it's not just a historic faith, but a current, present faith. As you live out of that word, as you walk each day, your faith will grow. Faith in itself, the size of a mustard seed, tiny amount, is sufficient. It's in whom your faith is that actually really matters. And so here we have this situation of the lake and the boat ride on this beautiful day, Jesus having a nap down the front. And we read there in verse 23, the second half, that a squall came down on the lake. Now, in um, the biblical languages, particularly in Hebrew, if you wanted to make a point, you repeat things. So if I really want to stress something, I repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. I do that just rhetorically to get it into your heads. But they also did it in the text. And so if you wanted to say something was really big, you repeat. So it's a big hole in the ground. It's a pit, pit. And if it's a really, really, really big hole in the ground, it's a pit, pit, pit. Okay? We see this beautifully in uh, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the throne room of God and the cherubs and all that kind of stuff are going. Cherubs, are, by the way, aren't little fat people, Renaissance children. Uh, that's not what they are. Angelic beings, and they're circling the throne and they're saying, does anyone remember? Holy, holy, holy. Repetition. And it's probably, I think, the only place where the tripling is actually used. Holy, holy, holy. God's holiness is beyond comprehension. But here in the original language, when it says a squall came down on the lake, it actually literally says a windstorm of wind. He's trying to make a point. It is a massive storm. It came down on the lake, so the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Now, Peter, Andrew, James and John, they were fishermen. They earned their money fishing this lake. Most of the others grew up in Galilee, around the lake of Galilee. And so they're familiar with it and they would know what it's like. Leon Morris in his commentary writes about this. He says, The lake of Galilee is subject to sudden storms, situated as it is some 700 feet below sea level. I think it's actually the lowest lake in the world, 700 feet below sea level and adjacent to mountainous regions. It sits in this big bowl. Uh, The mountainous regions, 20 kilometres to the north, is a mountain that is 9,000 feet. Okay? So you get the idea. You're going from 9,000 feet to minus 700, just over the the scale of of, uh, 20 kilometres. Cold air from the heights is apt to sweep down through the precipitous gorges to the east, and it can whip up the seas in a short time. So that is the situation that these guys find themselves in. These storms were not a rare occurrence, but they didn't see this one coming. And it's like that with us, isn't it? Most of us know that life is not always plain sailing. You get to the end of the year and nothing catastrophic has happened, and it's almost an exception rather than the rule, isn't it? Whether it's things of health, of finance, of work, friendship, marriage... Family, education, fill in the gaps. Whatever it is, our life so often is beset by these storms. And here we have a contrast of two responses. 
We have Jesus' response and the disciples' response. On one hand, Jesus. Keith Nichol writes this. He says, Jesus modelled for them the tranquility that comes from perfect trust. He went to sleep in the shalom, the peace of God. It was not that he'd overlooked the gale warnings in the weather reports, nor that he was such a landlubber that he did not grasp the perilous vulnerability of being out on the sea in an open boat. It was rather that he knew God was in control and he was willing to rely on that knowledge absolutely. You see that? God was in control. He was willing to rely on that knowledge absolutely. Jesus didn't sit down the front and chew his nails down to the bottom, hoping, praying that there wouldn't be a storm. He knew that whatever was going to come, God was actually in control. Many of us face life's anxieties like that. We're so pent up with what might be. We live with that fear, that anxiety, and here Jesus models for us what it looks like to have faith in a God who is completely in control. He knew the risk. Jesus was a local. He grew up in Capernaum, born in Nazareth, grew up in Capernaum. He knew the risk, but he knew God in whom his trust rested. And so he wasn't there anxious about what might be. He was calm with what was. He was a model of faith. And in contrast, what are the disciples? They come to him, they wake him, Master, Master, we're going to drown. There's the contrast. I reckon there's two miracles in this story. One is Jesus calming the storm. The other one is the fact that Jesus stayed asleep. Okay? He's there, perfectly resting down the front, and they're waking him up at the point where they're going to die. We see the contrast. Do we live modelling Jesus' calm trust or the disciples' panicking anxiety? Jesus rebukes the wind, the waves, the raging waters, the storm subsides, And everything is calm and he turns to the disciples and he asks a question that cuts to the heart of their experience and ours. They face the storms on Galilee. We face the storms of everyday life. And he asks them, where is your faith? He's not saying, do you have faith? He's asking, in what is your faith? Where does your faith rest? Upon what? Now, he could be telling them off at this point for not asking him to help. You know, they didn't wake him up and say, Jesus, Jesus, we've seen how you cast out evil spirits. Jesus, we've seen how you uh, heal people, how you raise the dead, how you do all these amazing things. Surely you can do something about this. Well, he could be saying, that's the problem. But I think... He's actually rebuking them for not calling on God. For not calling out like the Psalms did. Psalm 69, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. They had a whole history 
of God's people crying out to God and being saved. And God demonstrating his faithfulness again and again and again. Not only saving people out of the storm, but sustaining them in the storm. Philip Ryken says it like this, when Jesus said, where is your faith? He was challenging his disciples to live with the same kind of trust, to rest in their father's care. Jesus here, I think, is a model for us of someone who knows that the Father is perfectly trustworthy. So where is our faith? In what does our faith rest? Because we have even less excuse. We live in a society that is racked with anxiety. Talk to the medicos out there. They will tell you that there is an epidemic of anxiety and depression. Why? There's probably lots of reasons. But I think one of them is that many of the things that our society has taught us to trust in have been demonstrated unequivocally as not being able to take the weight. We live with our trust in ourselves, but we know how fragile and broken we are. We trust our leaders and they get reshuffled every second week. We trust the human spirit and stuff like Salt Creek happens, stuff like Syria happens, stuff like Afghanistan happens, stuff I could keep listening, happens. We have royal commissions into every human spirit that we can possibly imagine. Where is our faith? Jesus is lovingly challenging us to see that God alone is able to take the weight We have more reason than the 12 disciples to put our trust in the Father. We have seen that he has raised Christ from the dead. We have the rest of the New Testament that speaks to us that we are in Christ, that we are beloved sons and daughters. We have promises like Hebrews 4. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have promises like that. So why do we chew our nails to the quick? Why do we give ourselves ulcers? Why do we medicate ourselves to the eyeballs to deal with the stress and anxiety of this life? Yes, can I just say, there is medical conditions that require medications. I'm not having a go at that. But brothers and sisters, why don't we go to the Father and ask him for help? It could be that our faith is actually in something else, that we've believed our society. We've put our faith in ourselves and maybe we're living in denial that actually somehow we'll be able to pull this out of the fire. One day you won't. Maybe we're living with the pride 
knowing that it was wrongly directed, that our faith has been misplaced, but not wanting to come to God in repentance. Maybe our God is not big enough. We actually think, you know, Jesus, I don't think he could deal with this. I'm actually better at dealing with this than you are. Just listen to that and how absurd that sounds. Maybe we don't grasp the full relationship that we have with God through Christ. That we can go. When Paul says in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, present your request to God. He's saying, don't worry. God's got it under control. Now, can I just say, that doesn't mean it's always going to work out the way you want it to. But it does mean nothing is outside of his control. Jesus then ups the ante. You know, he stands up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, the storm, and they stop and the disciples ask this question, who is this? All of a sudden, Jesus has moved up a level. He was pointing them to the Father, but all of a sudden, the Son is standing alongside the Father as the one in whom we can put our faith. The one who commands the winds and the waves. And before they were afraid, and now I think they would be absolutely terrified. In fear and amazement, they ask one another, Who is this? Brothers and sisters, this one is the one who calls us to come and follow. This is the one who calls us to trust in the Father and in his Son. He is our shelter in the storm. He is the one who is in the storm with us. Where is Jesus in this? He doesn't stand on the side of the lake and say, hey guys, it'd be really good if you went for sale. He is there in the boat with them. And the promise of Scripture is that by his Holy Spirit living in us, we have the Father and the Son, so much so that when David says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. You are with me. So brothers and sisters, be comforted. God has not set you on his way. Go over there. I'll hang here. I hope you're okay. He is there in the storm with you. Trust him. He is the one also who has total control. Many of us face difficult, horrible circumstances. I've been here for long enough, I know many of you well enough to know that there are few lives that are not touched by tragedy. Some of us are dealing with these things here and now. Some of us are looking at our boat and seeing the waves break over the side. Some of us I've got alarms going off on my phone. (laughs) 
Maybe Jesus is telling me to stop the sermon. No, no, that can't be it. That can't be it. Some of us are facing horrible things. Horrible things. We are totally out of our depth. God has got this. God is totally in control. The one who is in the boat with you is the one who commands the wind and the waves and they stop. The one who has broken the power of sin and death. He's got this. Elizabeth Elliot was married to a man, Jim Elliot. Some of us will know that name. You might know another name, Nate Saint. They were missionaries down in Ecuador to one of the local tribes. And Elizabeth Elliot, her husband, along with many others, were murdered in the course of their mission. She knows what it is to face loss. She stayed there and ministered there for a number of years before going back, remarrying and then burying another husband. She got remarried again. And then before she died, just a few years ago now, she suffered with dementia for over a decade. She knew the storms of life. She wrote this, God is God. And since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. Listen to this. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably and unspeakably beyond what my largest notions of what he's up to. What she's saying is, I've got a plan for how my life might work out. But I know that God has that plan and his plan is infinitely bigger than my plan. And he is God and I am not. And so I rest in that. Brothers and sisters, we don't always know why God has us walk, sail through that storm. We don't know what the end will be like, if there will be an end. Maybe the storm, the waves, the wind will break the boat and it will sink. But even in death, Christ is in control. Because he is the one who conquered it. We find this hard. We find this hard. But I think Eliot's right. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. This is the will of the one who calls us to follow through the storm. I don't know if you noticed, Jesus was the one who had the smart idea to go sailing that day. It was his idea. They just went along with what he wanted. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is in control. Jesus sets our path before us and sometimes it will lead through, through the storm. It's not saying that everything that happens to us is just something we should laugh and smile. Oh, it's God's will. It doesn't mean it won't be tough. When you're called to follow, you're not called to follow to an easy, comfortable, stress-free kind of life. His purpose is not to make us happy. His purpose is to make us godly. 
His purpose is to see us formed in the image of Christ. J.C. Ryle captured this beautifully. He said, by affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it, we should never learn. By affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it, we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, that we are not to be trusted. It draws us to the throne of grace that he is to be trusted. It purifies our affections. It sets our hearts to love him more because we know him better. It weans us from the world and makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning we shall all say, it was good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. That's a hard thing to hear. We shall thank God for every storm. If you're caught up in a storm at the moment, recognise that Jesus is the one who is in the storm with you. He has complete control over the storm and he calls you to follow in the storm. And he can do that because he went into the ultimate storm for us. He felt the full fury of the righteous judgment and anger of God against your sin and mine. He cried out, Lord, save me. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He was not answered. So that we might never know silence when we cry out. That we might never fear that we are not worthy to be heard because Christ has made us worthy. This one is the Lord of the storm. Charles Wesley and his brother John went on a mission trip to America. It was a complete failure. It's really nice when great Christian saints fail completely. It makes me feel so much better about myself. On the way back, the boat they were on was hit in a massive storm. And he wrote this hymn. Some of you might know it. Jesus, lover of my soul. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Saviour, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Brothers and sisters, Jesus and his Father can be trusted absolutely. They have demonstrated it again and again and again. My prayer is that your prayer would be, Hide me, O my Saviour, hide, till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guide, I receive my soul at last. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you are completely in control. We confess that so often we put our trust, our faith in other things, things that are not worthy, things that cannot sustain us. Father, we are tempted 
to turn to ourself, to the things around us, to people around us, to our own achievements. And Father, you and your grace show us that they cannot sustain us. Father, help us to trust you completely. Forgive us when we don't. And by your spirits, tune our hearts to your grace and power. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are facing particular storms at the moment, who look around and all they see is the wind and the waves. Lord, I pray for them especially that you would, you would show them that you are a God who saves. You would show them that your grace is sufficient. You would show yourself to be completely trustworthy. Father, help us to trust you in all things. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.